The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You shall heed such a prophet. Anyone who does not heed the words that the prophet shall speak in my name, I myself will hold accountable. This is the word of the Lord. Let's review some things that I said to you a few weeks ago when I was speaking from Genesis 1. The book of Deuteronomy is the fifth and last of the scrolls in the Torah. The book of Deuteronomy is not mentioned in the Bible until 2 Kings. When 2 Kings says that while Josiah was king of Judah, those are the two southern tribes, the priest came in one morning and reported to him that they had found a scroll, a scroll of Moses hidden away in one of the closets. When the time came after Alexander the Great that there were more Jews who could speak, read, and write uh, Greek than could speak, read, and write Hebrew, and they translated their scriptures into Greek, uh, the Greeks provided the name, if you would, for this fifth scroll, Deuteronomos, a second time of the law, if you would, the second time of the law, because it's very much like Exodus, and yet with a different perspective, uh, from a different viewpoint. And most scholars today believe that this scroll the priest found in the closet uh, still had wet ink on it when it was delivered to King Josiah the next morning. That in fact these priests had written this scroll to challenge the people. That Moses did not write these words, that in fact they are a good 600 years after Moses had lived and died. And yet they are trying to describe a similar kind of situation. Remember that Moses is the old warrior who had grown up in Egypt, had fled after killing an Egyptian who was mistreating Jews, who had ended up in the Sinai Desert, saw a burning bush, was approached by a voice which he said was God's voice, giving him a new name and sending him back to Egypt. God who visited upon Pharaoh a series of ten plagues until finally Pharaoh let the Jews go free. God parted the waters of the sea, led them across the Sinai Desert, fed them with manna and quail at one point, gave them water to drink, brought them back to the mountain where they were given the Ten Commandments. Okay? Moses had lived 600 years before Deuteronomy was written, we believe. And yet, as Moses now is about to die, and Joshua will lead the people across the river, into a land they have not seen for more than 400 years. The Canaanites have reestablished themselves. The dreaded Philistines are still there. How do we move into this new for us land? How do we move into that land? Now, 600 years later, the southern tribes are facing a very powerful enemy from the north. The dreaded Assyrians have already uh, destroyed the ten northern tribes a hundred years before. And now, a hundred years later, the southern tribes are lapsing into the same uh, miserable interpretations of the Torah, not living out their faith with God. And these priests say to King Josiah, Moses said, pay attention to what Moses said. And he read the scroll, in fact, attempted reform. And then he was murdered, and they went down that slippery slope. About 35 years later, the Babylonians came, burned the city burned Solomon's temple, burned the palace, 
rounded up the royal family and the best and brightest and forced marched them all the way to Babylon where they were in exile for more than 50 years. So if you see this passage being written about Moses, but probably 600 years later, when they're anticipating uh, problems bigger than any they think they've ever faced before, how do they move into this new day? Four things. Number one, I, the Lord, your God, speaks here. Now, there were no atheists in the time Deuteronomy was written. No evidence whatsoever that anybody was an atheist. The only question was, who has the right God? The old gods and goddesses came from stories having to do with fertility. In a sparsely populated part of the world, in very difficult living circumstances, it was important that every woman have babies, every ewe have lambs, every cow have calves, and every seed germinate properly, grow, and make more for people to eat. So most of the gods and goddesses had to do with fertility cults. And they worshipped uh, symbols of that fertility, like big, strong bulls and so on. Not the Jews. Not the Jews. The Jews were very clear that their El, their God, was the one who came to Moses at the burning bush. The Eye, Asher, Eye, I am who I am. So this passage, written 600 years later, begins, I, the Eye, Asher, Eye, your Elohim. I'm the one who's been there for you, been there with you, led you all these years, made possible what's happened to you all these years. Uh, start with me, and you shall have no other God but me. I don't care how powerful the Babylonians now seem to be, how powerful the Persians will become, or how powerful Egypt may be again. Their gods are not the right gods. You have the right one. That one at the burning bush. That's the right one. A couple of months ago, I told you about a very popular book last year called Living a Year Biblically. It was written by a fellow named Jacob Jacobs, with that good name. You would imagine he's probably a Jew, and he is, but not an observant Jew, he said. Uh, born into a Jewish family, circumcised, knew he was a Jew, but simply didn't participate. Wasn't really, not really observant. After he was married, father children, he decided he would spend a whole year taking the Hebrew scriptures seriously. And he went through looking for all the thou shalt's and thou shalt nots, and he ended up with more than 700 of them. 700 things he was supposed to do or not to do, and he resolved to live 365 days as close to all of those injunctions as possible. Had to get himself a kippah to wear on his head. Had to get himself a talif, a prayer shawl that he wore underneath his shirt with the little tassels hanging out at the bottom. Quit shaving, quit having his hair cut. Didn't observe some of the same hygiene laws that he had before. Uh, some of the new products he felt were not appropriate, deodorants, that sort of thing. Had to change his way of eating entirely. Um, a lot of things he wasn't supposed to eat that he'd been eating. And so he made his list and tried desperately to follow for a whole year, then wrote a book about it. But since that time, the fact that his book has sold well, he's been invited to, to talk about his book. And in one of the interviews, he said this, I think like many other Americans, 
I had gotten the idea that life is a series of entitlements. That life, the world, my country, my God, owed me. It was interesting to spend a whole year reading the Holy Writ, which said life is a series of responsibilities. And how one lives up to or fails to live up to responsibilities makes all the difference. It changed my life, he said. I, the Eye Asher Eye, your Elohim. Number two, I will lift up a prophet like me, God says. But remember who's supposed to be speaking here? Moses. Moses is saying that our God, who met me at the bush, who sent me back to Egypt, who parted the waters of the sea, who led us across the desert, who gave us the Ten Commandments, will give you a prophet like me. And that's very important, the like me part. How close is God's spokesperson to being like Moses? You see, it's very important that speaker for God. Who is she, he? How well trained? How much does this person really know about how this book came to be and what God is trying to say in it? You know, I grew up six miles outside a small town in East Texas at a gas compressor station. Rode a school bus in and out of town every school day for 12 years. But I knew virtually everybody in Panola County, Texas. I knew no Jews. I knew no Muslims. Everybody claimed to be a Christian of one kind or another. And we had some rather unusual kinds. Uh, the young man who went all the way through school with me and was our quarterback on our football team, uh, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th grades, he was our quarterback all six years, um, got saved, baptized, and ordained one night when he was a sophomore in high school. Went to school five days a week. He was pastor of a little church there in Panola County every Sunday from the time he was 16. The guy that had cut my hair, very first haircut I ever had until I went away to college, and even occasionally when I could be back in my hometown from college, he still cut my hair off, and he got saved, baptized, ordained one night, same night. And from that point on, he cut hair Monday through Friday, preached at little church every Sunday. Now, there are some who say, well, all that really matters is sincerity. Is that what you look for when you go to see a physician? Sincerity? It's not what I look for. Uh, when I go to see a physician, I look on the wall to see where did this person go to medical school? Where did this person go to medical school? Number two, where did he or she do residency? Where, where medical school, where residency? But we have folks running around Tulsa self-ordained, uh, just buy a piece of property or rent a place in a strip mall, start having church. You can say anything you want to in this country, and there are people, sadly enough, who will believe you 
whether you have any training whatsoever or not. It's amazing. Marianne Emmons serves on our Board of Ordained Ministry for the Oklahoma Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church. And Marianne can tell you how many years we make young women and men go to school to learn how to be a Methodist preacher. And only after all those years, minimum of seven years of college at accredited, approved college universities, seminaries, even then they must take oral exam after oral exam and written exam after written exam and the Board of Ordained Ministry is trying to determine, does this person know our faith? Does this person know our faith? The other day I was reading the Wall Street Journal and there was a headline on one of the pages that said, Heaven help us. Stars expound scripture. I knew I needed to read that article. And so I started reading. And I discovered that though the Bible has been a bestseller in this country forever, one particular publisher decided that they might could sell even more Bibles if they had celebrities write the foreword to the Bible. And so they started asking people like Spike Lee and Jane Fonda and Martin Scorsese and others to write the foreword to the Bible. And they sold thousands and thousands of copies. So they decided, well, why not let the stars tell you what the scriptures mean? Do you turn to the stars to tell you who to vote for on Tuesday? Do you turn to the stars to tell you what we ought to do next in Iraq or Afghanistan or Israel, the Gaza Strip? People who so often dropped out of school even before they graduated high school to be actors and actresses and suddenly become your gurus, those who lead you spiritually. The person who wrote this article for the Wall Street Journal is not a minister, not a rabbi, not an imam. This woman is a fellow at a major, major think tank in our country that has to do with ethics. And she said, are these the people we really want telling us what the Holy Scriptures mean? So here, hear this Deuteronomist who says, The Lord, your God, will raise up a prophet like me, like Moses. Okay? One who knows our history with this God. Okay. Number three. But if we're sure this is the one, then you are to heed what this prophet has to say. Here's a place to pay close attention. I get discouraged sometimes with lay people who hear two different preachers when I know both of them, and I hear lay people say, well, this one's just like that one. And I say, I cannot believe this. I knew a very well-known pastor down in Texas. He pastored a church 23 years. He was followed by a man who pastored the church the next 16 years. And I would run into folks from time to time and say, how's your new preacher doing? Oh, wonderful. He's just like the prior one. He was nothing like the prior one. The only thing they had in common was they both came from Georgia. The one who was there 23 years preached every Sunday the gospel of grace, of mercy, of forgiveness. And the one who followed him, I never saw him when he didn't look like he might have 
a stroke at any minute. His face was red. He was so angry. The devil was after us, and we had to hurry. He was going to catch us in a dead minute. The same message from these two guys? That's what the lay people said. Well, he's just like the other one we had. He was nothing like the other one they had. Your prophet, listen carefully to your prophet. If your prophet is, in fact, saying what is true from Genesis to Revelation about the nature of God and God's working in, through, with, initiating right relationship with his people. Are you familiar with the Newbery Award? The Newbery Award is presented once each year to the writer who's contributed most to children's literature. And just recently, the 2008 Newbery Award was given to a woman 52 years old who had never won such an award before, never had anything published until a little over a year ago. Laura Amy Schlitz. After college, decided she wanted to write literature for children. Someone said to her, you'll have to have a literary agent. And so Laura Amy consulted people whom she was told to consult, wrote to them and asked if they would take her on as a... No, nobody was interested. She said for 20 years, she tried to get her a literary agent without success. She supported herself by being a librarian. But at nighttime, she wrote stories for children. Finally, after years and years, she's 52 now, according to this article I read, after all these years, there were enough parents and children who knew that she was writing things at night, asked if they could read some of the things she had written, who said to her, you have to get these published. She said, I'd given up all hope of ever being published. I just knew that as long as I lived, I was going to write stories for children. And so she looked up the names of 12 publishers of children's literature, 11, I'm sorry, she wrote to 11 of them. Immediately, almost 10 of them sent back rejection slips. The 11th one, it finally turned out, a major editor saw her work, just pushed it to one side. A young underling, about three levels down, decided to read her story one night and just demanded this editor read her work, read this story. It's called Good Masters, Sweet Ladies. And they found an illustrator and they published her book and it became the winner of the Newbery Prize. And this is what Laura Amy said. In all these years, I've studied little children, and I've read lots of stories written for them. I discovered that our oldest folklore always, always, always takes up for the underdog. And that children, at their innocent best, have a real sense of justice. What's fair and what's not fair? And they love kindness, and they love mercy, and they love forgiveness. And whether anybody ever read my stories or not, I was determined to write what I knew to be true about children at their best. Heed the prophet who speaks to you a truth from Genesis to Revelation that is consistent about who God is and who we are, how God initiates relationship with us, and how we can respond appropriately and be rightly related to God and each other. Number four, the part we don't like to hear on these passages. If you do not heed my prophet, I will hold you accountable. Uh, guess who they were writing to? 
King Josiah. King Josiah, Moses has written something here for you last night. We want you to, we want you to heed this and do the right thing. It did become holy writ, you say. Deuteronomy is holy writ. These priests did a good job of writing what needed to be said. If you do not heed that prophet who is like me, if not Moses, 600 years later, maybe there is in that dark closet that night a small group of men who were like Moses, who did have a new word from God that King Josiah needed to hear. If you don't heed what my prophet tells you, I'll hold you accountable. When Bishop Paul Galloway was here with us, we all loved him. He had been my bishop down in Texas. He was a wonderful bishop. He gave me one of the biggest breaks of my life when he helped me move from being an associate after nine years to being pastor of one of our best churches in Beaumont, Texas. He told me then if I did things well, he thought my next stop could be Boston Avenue, Tulsa, which he believed was the greatest Methodist church in America. He loved it more than any other. And so when I came here and he called to congratulate me, I invited him to come and be our bishop in residence. He was retired, as you know. And we had ten great years with him before his death. One day, he was asking me where I'd gotten a particular illustration for a sermon, and I was telling him. And he said, you know, I always found one of the most fruitful places to get illustrations for sermons were biographies. I read a lot of biographies, he said. I said, but how do you know before you read one whether this is about a good person or a bad person? He said, it doesn't matter. Either one, it's a, it's a good illustration, he said. Good people make one kind of illustration. Bad people make another kind of illustration. Still good illustration if it's well written, he said, and if it's true. So I want to tell you just a brief bibliog a biography, if you would. Bobby Fisher died last month. Remember Bobby Fisher? He grew up when I grew up. Bobby Fisher was hailed as a genius from the time he was born, and he directed his energies toward playing chess. Chess. By the time he was 16, he was playing some of the greatest chess masters in the world. But he was a snotty little kid, and he grew up to be a really nasty man. So many people had told him how bright and brilliant he was. But when he was 16 and lost a major match and someone called out, Great game, Bobby, he wheeled around, glared at the person and said, And how would you know? But then he reeled off 20 victories in a row against the greatest chess players in the world. And by the time he was 28, in Reykjavik, Iceland, he beat the world's best, Boris Spassky, the Russian, and never played again. Never played again. He played that last match when he was 28. And for 36 years, he did not play. He spent his life railing against the Russians, and most of us appreciated that. He railed against Jews, and we didn't appreciate that. He was one of the biggest anti-Semites of the last 36 years. He often screamed, ranted, and railed about the Jews and their taking over the world. So he was not really welcome in the United States. He spent years in Hungary, Yugoslavia, Japan, the Philippines. He died in Iceland, where his greatest victory had come, a recluse. 
the biographer that I was reading said that if one lives alone, if one does not have peers to help correct one's behavior, one gradually moves into madness. How many times have we seen stories about a person who had no contact with anyone else who finally goes down to a store and starts shooting people? They have no corrective by their peers. This book says you need one even bigger than that, and that's the power of God, the presence of God, the God who holds you and me accountable. This biographer asks, why did Bobby Fischer never play again? And he said, I think he was afraid. If he had ever played again and had lost without chess, he had nothing.